This morning, friends, we continue our studies in the Apostle Paul's second letter to the Church of God at Corinth. This second letter was written just under 12 months following his first letter to the Church of God at Corinth. And this second letter has been described as possibly the Apostle's uh, most personal letter. Uh, He was keenly aware of the influence of false teachers who had crept in unawares into the church at Corinth. And in part, this second letter to the church of God at Corinth is a defense of the apostles' authority and of his preaching ministry. In our last study, a few weeks ago, we were looking into 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and we noticed there that the apostle was making contrast and comparison between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant, which came in under Moses, the new covenant, which came in under Jesus Christ. The old covenant, which was good, but it did not have the power to save. The old covenant, which came with a use-by date. In contrast to the new covenant, which does have the power to save because of the mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. And also the new covenant is an eternal covenant. It does not have a pass-by date. So we noted these things in the letter here at chapter 3. But we now move into the chapter 4. And in a sense, my text this morning is chapter 4 and verses 1 to 6. Not just a single text, but a group of verses that I intend to look at with you together. And I trust that it will be for our mutual spiritual benefit and encouragement to our faith as we reflect upon these words. And as we do so, we remember that we are reading and we are listening to God's word being preached to us. This is not by human origin or imagination, but these words have been inspired by Almighty God. And they are inerrant, which means they are fully trustworthy. And so we are listening for God to speak his word to each one of us this morning, I trust. The apostle begins with the word therefore at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. We always know that therefore means it is relating, it is closely linked to something previous, something before that the apostle has been writing about. Therefore, he writes, seeing we have this ministry. What ministry? If you glance back to chapter 3 at verse 6, we read there, who also have made us able ministers of the New Testament or the New Covenant. So this ministry which Paul is referring to is the New Covenant ministry. It is the gospel ministry. It is a ministry primarily about the Lord Jesus Christ, as we read down at verse 5, when he writes, We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. It is a gracious ministry. It is a ministry 
that has the power to utterly transform, transform lives because it is the ministry of Christ and the good message of salvation. So he writes of this ministry, as we have received mercy. The Apostle Paul writes in the first letter to Timothy at chapter 1 and verses 12 and 13. He writes here about Christ, who hath enabled me, for he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, injurious, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. So the Apostle Paul, he recognizes that he has obtained mercy from God. He would not now be an apostle or an ambassador for Christ. He would still be a persecutor and a blasphemer and an injurious man, but for the divine intervention, for the mercy of God, and for the grace of God. For he says in his first letter, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he was a living witness and example of that mighty power of God to utterly transform. And as he exercises this ministry, this gospel ministry, this new covenant ministry, he's still aware of God's mercy and God's help upon him. And this causes him to continue to persevere in the work of ministry, even though he faces opposition and hostility and worse. But he perseveres in gospel work. Therefore, seeing that we have this ministry, and friends, if you are a believer, then you also can write yourself into this because you also have a gospel ministry. You may not be called to formally herald the gospel from a pulpit, but you are called to witness to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And that is your ministry, gospel ministry. If you have received mercy from God, if you have also felt the grace of God in your experience, and so he can write, we faint not. We faint not, or as a new version of the Bible puts it, we do not lose heart. How often have you lost heart in gospel work? Because you've become discouraged. Because there's been little fruit to show for all your labors and all your efforts and all your prayers. But do not lose heart, friend. Keep faith in God. Keep praying, keep working. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we've received mercy, we faint not. Now, I've calculated, it's a rough calculation, so don't pick me up on it, please, that there's just under 40 souls comprise this fellowship, including a few children. I understand that there's about 16,000, and day by day that number is increasing in terms of the population of this city of Ripon. Forty people, 16,000 souls, 
It would seem, Lord, that it would seem to us that we are up against it. And why are we up against it? Because the God of this world has blinded their minds. Not every one of those dear friends that live and reside in this city, I hope, but I guess quite a high number. As I observe coming to church, I don't see crowds of people making their way to local fellowships. I see just a handful of cars in the car parks of churches on the Lord's Day morning. So therefore, you see, what is happening when we are making the gospel known is that we are invading another's territory. We are invading Satan's territory. Because Satan wants to control people. Satan does control people, and especially their minds. For the God of this world, and what has the God of this world done? He has blinded their minds. He has blinded their minds. So my first point is gospel ministry. My second point is to set forth the truth plainly. At verse 2, the apostle is very graciously not directly criticizing the false teachers, but he is referring to them. But we have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, not handling the word of God deceitfully. He mentioned toward the end of chapter 2, We read there at verse 17 of chapter 2. For we are not as many, i.e. the false teachers, which corrupt the word of God. So he is comparing himself, the true teacher, with the false teacher of the gospel. And what he's saying in effect is about the false teachers, that they are disgraceful because they employ underhand ways. They are cunning. They are not plain speaking. They tamper with God's word. They are proclaiming a synthetic gospel at best, rather than the authentic gospel of Christ, the gospel which the Apostle Paul sought to preach. And the Apostle Paul is saying quite straightforwardly, further into verse 2, that he preaches the word by manifestation of the truth. He's setting forth the truth plainly. He's not seeking to adulterate or dilute the word of the gospel. He has received the good news into himself and he has been charged and commissioned with presenting it to others. And he is endeavoring faithfully to do that with God's help. And of course, he's speaking here when he mentions truth, he's speaking about revealed truth. How good is the God we adore? Because he has made himself known to us. As fallen sinful creatures, with so many limitations, we would never have discovered God for ourselves if he had not revealed himself to us. Yes, he's revealed himself to us in the creation, of course. He's revealed himself to us in the scriptures and he's revealed himself to us in Christ his son so gospel truth is a revealed 
truth. It's not something that the most intelligent human being could have discovered for themselves. But here's a question then. Why does Paul write at verse 3 of our text, But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. This seems to be suggesting, does it not, that the work of the gospel is not very effective. Now this runs counter to what we know about Paul's ministry because every town and city that he visited, he went into the synagogues first and preached to the Jews and then he preached to the Gentiles and in every place there were those who were being converted. Sufficient number to plant a new church in those towns and cities. So the gospel message is not ineffectual completely, but nevertheless, it is hid to some. That word hid there means from the original word, it means to wrap around or to cover up. So the revealed word of truth, the gospel of truth, is hid. And who is it hid? It's hid to those who are lost as we describe them, or elsewhere as those who are perishing. Chapter 2 again in verses 15 and 16 we read, For we are unto God a sweet savour of Christ, in him that are saved, and in them that perish. To the one we are the savour of death unto death, to the other the savour of life unto life. And so to those who are described as perishing... The apostle in his gospel ministry is, as we read there, the savour of death unto death. What do we mean when we describe someone as being lost? Well, what we mean is it's very simple. Many of us understand this, I know. But let's remind ourselves. When we describe people as being spiritually and eternally lost or perishing, we mean that they are walking through this world, they are experiencing life in this world without God. If you go into the countryside for a ramble or for a walk and you have no guide and you have no map and you have never walked that walk before, it's highly likely you may find yourself lost. And I'm speaking from personal experience over recent years. But if you do have a guide, someone to show you the way, or if you are carrying an ordnance survey map and you can read an ordnance survey map and understand it, then you will find your way. And so these people are walking through this life and they are lost because they do not have a guide and they do not have a map to show them the way. But they could have a guide and they could have a map if their eyes were opened, if God shone his truth into their hearts and then they would be able to see and to understand and to grasp the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The third point is that we have a formidable foe. Verse 4, in whom the God of this world Satan, the god of this world, sometimes the prince of this world. The god of this world, 
Satan's power is limited. He will not be, he will not have any power or authority in the next world. He is only the God of this world. And when the devil came to Christ in those days of temptation, this is what the devil said to the Lord at Luke chapter 4 and verse 6. The devil said to Jesus, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered unto me. So the God of this world has power. The God of this world has much power. But the God of this world does not have almighty power. Nevertheless, he is a formidable foe. He's the arch enemy of God and of the gospel and of the Lord's people. And he seeks to control people's minds. The God of this world has blinded their minds. Someone has said that Satan's worldview, Satan's worldview pervades the very atmosphere that we live in. And that's why there is gospel ignorance. That's why there are so many errors and misunderstandings about the gospel. And that's why there are many prejudices against the gospel. Because Satan has taken control of people's minds. And I give you three current examples of this, which are daily set before our very eyes. One, in the world of science, all this argument and debate about the theory of evolution or the creator God. Why do people not believe Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 and following? Because Satan has, is residing in their minds. In education, again, we see another example of this, do we not? in terms of the present curriculums in the schools and how some of that material is so inappropriate for the children and worse. And why is this? Why, is, why have there been these significant changes in education in the last 40 or 50 years since some friends here, including myself, went to school? Because Satan has blinded their minds. And thirdly, in the media... And I used to work for a newspaper many years ago. But in the world of the media, in newspapers and in television, what do we see? Do we see a Christian worldview being presented? Of course not. We see Satan's worldview being presented because Satan has blinded their minds. And so verse 4, In whom the God of this world have blinded the minds of them which believe not, What's the consequence of this? Lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Lest that light of the glorious gospel of Christ should shine unto them, should shine into their hearts. That word light in our context here means quite simply to enlighten, to illuminate, to grant understanding and spiritual sight here. And it speaks there of, of Christ who is the image of God. 
He is the exact imprint of God, the exact representation of God. And that's why I read earlier those beautiful words in the preface to the fourth gospel. John chapter 1. Let me just remind you very briefly of some of those words. We're thinking about Christ being the image of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's very clear. That's not ambiguous. We can understand that, that the Word, the Logos, the Christ, is God. And all things, verse 3, were made by Him. So He is the Creator. Of all things, isn't he? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And it speaks about the light shining in the darkness, and the darkness comprehending it not. And it says at verse 11 that he came unto his own, and his own received him not. Why did the Jews not so readily receive the Messiah of ancient prophecy? Because Satan had blinded their eyes. That's why they didn't receive him. And so you see, Christ is the image of God, verse 14 in John 1. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And yet at verse 18, it reminds us that no man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared him. So Christ is the image of God. Let us ever remember this truth. Sometimes these things are so familiar to us, aren't they, as as seasoned uh, believers in Christ. But to remember amongst many other offices and attributes that we uh, can give to the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the image of God. He bears that resemblance, that likeness, just as a child bears the family resemblance to their parents. And so is the image of God. And so this gospel has the power to transform. And further forward in chapter 5, back in 2 Corinthians now, we read at verse 17, Therefore, if any man or woman be in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. So there is that mighty work of God's Holy Spirit. So God is spirit. God is invisible to us in that way, isn't he? But God became Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. Christ pitched his tent And human eyes beheld his glory. Those early disciples, as we read in the first letter of John, at the beginning of that letter in 1 John, we read, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. Tremendous words, aren't they? And so we can say, fourthly, that we preach Christ. Verse 4, for we preach Christ, not ourselves, but we preach not ourselves, I'm sorry, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Every brethren who stands in a pulpit is not called 
to advertise himself. Not called to seek admiration and applause from his congregation. Every preacher is called to stand behind another. To stand behind the Lord Jesus Christ. And to preach Christ. And to glorify him in the message. And so that is our calling, friends. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. Jesus, his name means he shall save his people from their sins. And Lord, the governor, the one who has been given all authority in heaven and here upon earth. The apostle writes also in the the book of Acts. Acts 26, towards the end of that letter, he writes in Acts chapter 26, verse 18. He's been mentioning that the apostle could say that he preached Christ, verse 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith, That is in me. That was gospel ministry. That was the work of the apostle. That he was called to preach Christ. But then finally. At number verse 6. We read of the power of God. The almighty power of God. In contrast to the God of this world. And the limitations placed upon Satan's power. Verse 6, for God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, have shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It was a gentleman by the lovely name of Christotom who in the 4th century, he was the one who was being given uh, the word for first putting together this scripture in 2 Corinthians 6 and Genesis 1 to 3, Genesis 1, 1 to 3, and making that link between creation and recreation, between nature and regeneration. I think I referred to it in an earlier prayer this morning that in terms of the work of, of regeneration, it is contrary and it is against nature. In other words, We cannot make it happen because it is a supernatural work. It is a divine intervention by God. And so the work of recreation requires the same almighty power as did the work of the first creation. When in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth and all things in it. And does this not bring home to us, friends, when we are praying for someone in the family, a friend or a neighbor, a work colleague, and when we are praying for them because we are judged them to be spiritually lost, it seems to underline the massive task that's set before us. Because we are praying for this person to become a new creation in Christ. And that is only a work of God by his almighty power. 
and we give him all the glory. So a person we pray for and they are wonderfully saved and they have been made from being a person who is a stranger to God's grace to being a person who can sing with John Newton about God's amazing grace. It's a person who was for themselves and this world who is now out and out for Christ and for eternity. And so we read there that God commanded the light to shine out of darkness. It shined in our hearts. The apostle is referring to himself, to his co-workers, to those Christians in the church at Corinth, and to ourselves. Because we have been recipients, we've been privileged to be recipients of that spiritual light shining into our hearts and opening up our minds to gospel truth, to reveal truth, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The heart is the the place of thought and reasoning and understanding. And God, in a miraculous way, God illuminates the sinner's heart and mind and opens them up to himself and sees the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we find that light and that knowledge of the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. We find that knowledge there also, do we not? And you see, when we've been brought out of darkness into God's marvelous light, then we too are called and I put these words carefully, in some measure, please note those words, we are called in some measure to reflect Christ because we bear his name and because we follow after Christ because he is our Lord and our Savior. And we need help to do so. We need the help of God and the work of the Holy Spirit to daily sanctify us and to help us to bear more closely that image of Christ which is in us. As you know, we read in Genesis chapter 1 that God said, let us make man in our own image. That was the original, wasn't it? That we were made in the image of God. Because of the fall, that image has been destroyed. It's been marred and, and, and destroyed. But now there's opportunity for that image to be returned when we come to Christ and we know his power upon us. And then, and this is my final word this morning, we read in John chapter 1 at verse 18 that those first disciples beheld his glory, beheld the glory of Christ, beheld the glory of God. Because... Christ is co-equal to the Father and to the Son. Because Christ is co-eternal to the Father and to the Son. So everything we say about God the Father, we say about God the Son. So we say that the two have knowledge. Spiritual knowledge. The two are to be honored. The two have creative and redemptive power. The two uh, work in the same way. The the two have dominion 
The two have the power to save in that sense. And so we're called to the knowledge of the glory of God. I just refer you to John chapter 17. In John's Gospel chapter 17, the words of the high priestly prayer. And these are significant words for us this morning. Verse 17, verse 1, these words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, that the hour is come, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. And down at verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. O now, O Father, glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And so when we look into the face of Jesus Christ, we do not see him physically because he's in heaven. But when we look into his face spiritually, then we are granted knowledge of the glory of God. The glory of God in creation. The glory of God in the work of redemption. The glory of God in my own experience of recreation. The glory of God in answering our prayers. The glory of God in upholding us by his grace day by day. Oh, to grasp ever more the depths and the riches of the glory of God, the God whom we love and adore. You see, true religion is to know Christ. And to know Christ is to know God. And to deny Christ is to deny God. May there be no one here this morning who said that the God of this world have blinded your minds to the gospel and to Christ and to eternal life and blessings in the gospel work. Christ, the exact image, the exact representation of God. Amen.